Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Kara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll Bennett. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence ours and theirs. Our guest today is psychologist Dr. Lisa Damore, who has been a critical mental health resource for so many adults caring for kids during the pandemic. Between her adolescence columns in the New York Times and her Ask Lisa podcast with co-host Rena Ninen, she provides such useful information and actionable guidance at a time when we have felt most at sea over the past 18 months. Just as her best-selling books, Untangled and Under Pressure, were guiding lights to so many of us before the pandemic ever hit. Today, Lisa is here to talk to us about the new school year, the third school year to be affected by the pandemic, and how we can take lessons learned from the past 18 months to move forward with our families. Welcome, Lisa. We are so happy to have you here. Oh, Vanessa and Cara, this is a huge treat. Thank you for having me. Okay, Lisa, before we jump in, just a couple of warm fuzzies for you. So the listeners need to understand that Vanessa and I both call Lisa our friend. And in fact, Lisa, you were I think the last person Vanessa had lunch with before the world shut down for COVID. And then you and I have this friendship that actually dates back to when you were on tour for Untangled and you came through LA and I I kind of stalked you. I sent you this blind email saying, I don't know if you know who I am, but I know who you are and I'm going to come hear you speak. And then you wrote back and you're like, oh, I know exactly who you are and you want to grab coffee. And we had coffee and it was like, oh, obviously we're going to be best friends. And, and then during COVID, you know, there's been so much heartbreak and so much difficulty throughout COVID, but all of us have found a silver lining or two, I think. And you are my silver lining. I've gotten to talk to you all the time and download, you know, medical stuff and, and, and very social stuff. And it's been a wonderful treat. So we are double introducing you today. First as our colleague and trusted resource, 
but then also as our friends to both of us separately and now together on the podcast. So welcome. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I am thrilled to be with both of you and I love both of you. I just love the work you do. I love your devotion to kids and their development and your you know, tender appreciation for family life and how complicated it is. And it's an honor to me to get to be with you. Thank you. you. Okay. So what I thought we would do, I want to just put a little context around this conversation before we jump into questions and a little bit of back and forth with you, a lot of back and forth with you. So normally Vanessa and I will record our episodes with a bit of lead time. This one, we are not doing that. We are recording right before we air. We're the week before we're going to air this episode. And that was by design because what we want to talk about today is we want to get an understanding of where we are in the pandemic, where we have been, a snapshot essentially of today, and where we're going. And we want to bring to the conversation a bit of a crystal ball to try to figure out how can we take the lessons of the past year and a half and apply them going forward as we enter what is the third school year that's being impacted by this pandemic. And, you know, we're all three of us are, we're practical people. We don't love reinventing wheels. And so it feels like a great opportunity to take the lessons learned and run with those lessons and be able to have some pointers that we can use in our own lives and hopefully the adults listening to this podcast can use in theirs. Um, And even if they're teenagers listening to this podcast, that they can use them in theirs. And so I want to just frame really quickly where we are in the pandemic. And then we're going to jump in to some questions about how do we take what we know and where we are to figure out how to handle where we're going. So here's today. Today is we're recording on August 30th of 2021. Um, In the United States, our seven-day coronavirus average uh, has surpassed 156,000 cases a day. And the last time we saw a number that high was at the end of January 2021. And it was when it was on the downslope. So that was as we were coming off a much bigger surge over the winter, but we haven't seen that number in a very long time. Our hospitalization rate in this country crossed 100,000 cases today for the first time since late January. So as of today, we do have more than 100,000 people who are hospitalized with their COVID. And very unfortunately, the death rate is also moving up. It has been trending up for some time. And today it is approaching 1,300 COVID deaths per day. It's hard to say the good news when you're talking about death rate, but I do have to say the good news when we're talking about death rate is that this is one third of the death rate that we saw in January. So while the average case number and the average hospitalization number are back where we were in the winter surge, the death rate is not. Um, And that is largely due to the vaccination effort. So that is the numeric summary of where we are. Anyone who looks at any of the data links, whether it's the Johns Hopkins database or the CDC database or any of, there are a number of really, really good uh, visual 
big data indicators that people can follow, you will see on that those graphs that December and January had a huge peak. And here we are end of August and the mountain is continuing to grow on the graph. So we're entering some woods here, I would say. The other thing that I want to contextualize is that schools have by and large started. There are some school districts that wait till after Labor Day. So when this episode airs, um, I would say 99.9% of all students in this country will be back in school, K through 12. But how they are in school is really a question. Most schools have gone back to in-person. Most schools are very committed to in-person because of the impact of both hybrid and remote learning from the last school year. However, many schools that opened in early August have already seen shutdowns in several classrooms because of spreading coronavirus. And of course, it would not be complete without mentioning that vaccination has not been approved for kids under the age of 12. And so as we speak in this conversation, we're speaking to three groups of parents. One group of parents who have kids that can be vaccinated and hopefully have been vaccinated. One group of parents who have kids who do not qualify because of age. And one group of parents that have a mixed bag that have some who are old enough and some who are not. And that's going to complicate this conversation, but we're going to try to be as clear as we can be as we go through it. That's the stage. Vanessa and Lisa, before I jump into my first question, can you believe it's been like 10 minutes and I haven't even asked a question? Do you have anything you want to add to the stage that we're setting? What I can add is I'm in that third complicated group myself as a parent. And so as tricky as it is, I am right there. I have a daughter who is 17 and vaccinated, and I think all her friends are also vaccinated. And I have a daughter who's about to be 11. And so I am straddling from the mothering standpoint, this complex universe of kids in two very different positions with regard to this pandemic. Yeah. And I I am too, Lisa. I have five of the six members of my family are vaccinated. I feel a little bit like we've inadvertently broken our promise to our kids that things would be a a lot more normal than they are. And that's where I'm struggling. And I feel like that's actually a good departure point, Lisa, for the first question, which is we, we haven't made explicit promises to kids, but we've kind of led them to believe that things would be a lot more normal. School would be a lot more normal. Sports would be a lot more normal. Travel would be a lot more normal. And it's becoming increasingly clear that that's still yet another year, if not longer away. And partially because, you know, we have children who are still unvaccinated. So I'm wondering in the effort to rather than reinvent the wheel, but move the ball up the field in new ways, What's your perspective on the sense that I have that I've kind of broken a promise to my kids and the kids that I work with and care for that like they're actually not getting the deal they thought they were going to get this fall? Well, none of us are. And, And I think that's a good position from which to enter this, which is that everybody, and my husband's a teacher, everybody came to the end of last school. You're like, yay, we crossed the finish line. All we have to do is get through this summer. And then back to normal. And 
we were wrong. Not just for our kids, we were wrong for ourselves. What I am seeing, though, where I am, and I'm in Ohio, where there's a lot of controversy and there's a wide range of approaches to this, it is very different than it was last year. And the ideal situation, which a lot of kids are enjoying, is it's school with masks. But it's basically school. Things are not that dramatically different from the school they remember, or normal school, if we're going to call it that. They just wear masks all the time. And they have times when they can take them off. They take sips of water. But they are back to moving from class to class and seeing their friends and eating lunch and walking to and from school and moving their bodies and being in the presence of teachers, the physical presence of teachers. It's so much different than it was last year. It's just not back to what it was before. Here is my experience, though, on the kids in masks thing. One, they're pretty used to it. It's been a long time since I had to remind a kid in my house to grab a mask as they were leaving. They just grab them as they go. They wear them like wristless, you know, on their wrists. They just take them as sort of an automatic thing. And my experience is, unless the parents make a big deal of it somehow being this great, awful inconvenience to have to wear a mask, the kids are pretty accustomed to it. And the masks have gotten better and they've gotten more comfortable and they've gotten more effective. So we have to stand back from this position of, oh, it's as though we've made no progress or we've gotten nowhere because that's not actually even true. And as long as we continue to empathize, like, oh man, these masks are a hassle. They're kind of a pain in the butt. If we do that and then otherwise model, but you can go be a student very much like you would have been a student without a pandemic. Kids will take their cues from us and most of them will just be so glad to be back in person with their friends and back in person with their teachers. Can I just dive into that a tiny bit? At what point do we become the annoying bright side parent? Car, is that what you were going to ask too? Like, I, I at, was. What, at what point is it like, but you still get to go to school and you still get to play soccer? And they like, that's the minute they roll their eyes and turn, tune you out. Like, that's the, that, that feels like the, the balancing act of like constantly when parenting and caring for adolescents. But like right now, Car, do you want to add to that? I was going to say the exact opposite, which is it feels like a spectrum between that and being the parent who, you know, over pathologizes something that's not pathological. Like how many times have our kids said something to us that is a passing thought to them and we chew on it for days and it becomes a huge thing in our mind and it's a nothing burger to them. And it's, you know, so there's a this whole spectrum between one and the other. And how, Lisa, do you do parents live in the middle so that they're authentic and they're also not sort of overblowing something that is not so significant to their kids? Well, one way to thread this needle, and this is a way I think all the time about parent-child communications, is to think in terms of lyrics and tune. So the lyrics are the words that come out of our mouth. The tune is the tone, the posture with which we say those words. So Vanessa... I actually don't know that I would jump very quickly to like, yeah, but it's so much better. Isn't it better? Can't you see that? But that would inform my tune. That sense of like, actually, it's all right. And actually, this is well within the range of what kids can handle. And actually, most things have come back to where they are. So using that to kind of create my stance for how I'm going to react to whatever they're complaining about. Let's say they're complaining. We wait for them to complain before we bring this stuff up. 
then I might say words that are deeply empathic. You're right. It is a total pain that you're still wearing a mask. You're right. It's hot and you got to wear a mask and that stinks and I am sorry. And so we empathize deeply with whatever the concern of the moment is, but they can hear the background feeling of like, and you can handle it. And I'm not that worried about it. And I think this is going to be just fine, even if we never say the words. And that's the posture that allows us to both be supportive, not dismissive of their concerns, but then to Cara's point, not making a bigger deal of something than is really warranted or helpful to the kid. So then to build on that, can you talk a little bit about resilience Let's use, maybe we'll use masks as an example, or we can pick a different pandemic related example. But can you talk a little bit about resilience, the lessons that we've learned, that you've learned as someone who reads all of the literature and teaches parents a lot about successful strategies, but then also sort of the lessons our kids have learned in the face of the pandemic how do we translate that resilience into action for them in very much this way that Vanessa's describing? There's a couple of things that come to mind. The first is adaptation. Kids are, humans are wildly adaptive. And we don't give ourselves enough credit for that. We really, you know, we panic when things change. And then even while panicking, we just start to adjust our lives. We make changes. We quickly get into new rhythms. We figure it out. And if we had any question about our capacity to do that, those questions have been answered. Right? I mean, like, you could not have invented a situation that required more adaptation. And not everybody has been able to adapt to it, but it is stunning how we all and our kids remade our lives almost overnight. And it's extraordinary how well humans can adapt to conditions that are really pretty miserable. And once we do it, and the longer we do it, the more automatic it becomes, the less bandwidth it takes up. So part of how our kids are resilient is they don't really mind masks anymore. It's just not that big a deal. And that's the shape of their resilience. Like they've adapted to this new demand. So the demand does not ask as much of them. That's one form. The other form of resilience that we <laughs> will get out of this, we're still not quite there. And I think that's the part that's so hard is we're like, where is this finish line? is the way in which a crisis resets one's yardstick for what constitutes a difficulty. And one of the concerns that we had about this generation of kids is that they weren't resilient enough, you know, that they were a little too reactive to bumps in the road. Well, now that's fixed. Right? Now, going forward for a long, long time, Anything they meet in the normal course of development, you know, getting dumped, you know, getting a class they don't like, getting a grade they don't like, you measure that against living for 18 plus months in a global pandemic in the middle of adolescence, it's going to be small potatoes. And the phrasing that has just kind of came into my mind, I would say about four or five months ago, that I just thought was so beautiful. Years ago, I was reading a clinical text about um, a clinician who specialized in taking care of Vietnam vets. And she had a Vietnam vet in her practice who she thought would really benefit from a group psychotherapy. And he didn't want to do it. He just, he didn't, it just didn't feel like his speed. He felt really anxious about it. And she said to him, I really want you to do this. Listen, if you can do three years in Nam, you can do six weeks in this group. 
and we can't beat this to death as parents, but we, what we now have at our disposal is we can say, if you can do two years in a global pandemic, you can do a semester with an ornery professor. Okay. So how do we help other parents do that too, right? Because that's amazing language from adult to kid. Can you give the same language when you have a friend or a family member who is sort of falling off a ledge with this? How do we help them utilize that resilience that they've built? Because they built it too, right? They have. One thing I've been thinking about a lot is how communities get through horrible things or how individuals get through horrible things. And some of the research that informs this comes from the trauma world. Not to say that the pandemic has been a trauma for everyone because it has not. It's been really yucky for everybody. And then it's gone, you know, up from there in terms of scale. But we were kind of surprised to find and actually glad to find in the literature on 9-11 and the post-traumatic impact of that, there was far less trauma than we expected to see. And the reason for that is that the people who were closest to it all pulled together, that Manhattan was a completely different place in the days after that, in the time after that. There was this extraordinary community support, this extraordinary sense of like, we've got each other, we're here for each other, we've all been through this. Now, this is a really different kind of trauma because it's so protracted and it's so spread out over time. But that idea that we're in it together and we can take care of one another and no one's got to be alone in this because it is so hugely universal. So when you come up against another parent who's having a moment, right? We all have our moments in this. We can lean into that idea that what we get to share is the universality of this and get to say, I totally hear you. I was there the other day. Like really, really, I had hit my limit with the pandemic. I totally get it. What can I do to support you? Can I tell you the thing that kind of got me out of it? But that sense of being a member of a community and pulling together is how we march ahead. And we know from the literature, it works. It, it's, it's better to have a horrible thing happen to lots of people than to an isolated individual in terms of the psychology of the individual. It's horrible that this is so widespread, but that's what we know. Isolation is actually where the injury really goes down. Yeah, I mean, I've noticed in friends and colleagues who are kind of stiff upper lip folks who are like, everything's great. I'm great. Everything's good. A willingness to be vulnerable, a willingness to share what they're struggling with, a willingness to say, I actually really need help or I can't do this meeting or I'm not in a great place today in a way that they would never have done it before. And it's it's a weird gift, that emotional honesty that I'm seeing in adults. And frankly, in my own house, an emotional honesty I have with my kids, you know, boundaried, but still honest. Like this was a really hard week and I'm really drained. What's underneath that observation, which I agree with totally, is that there has been so much shame caught up in the idea of not feeling good or struggling psychologically. And it's not gone. <laughs> the pandemic's not going to cure that. But it might have put a dent in it because of the sheer universality of this. And if we could get any amount of shame out of questions about mental health, 
that would be a really good thing. Yeah, I mean, that sense of not being, that sense of not being alone. I have surprised myself on a really a weekly basis on what I can endure. And in the context of greater scheme of trauma, it's it's very little. It's, you know, minor things week to week, but things that would have been hard of, on me. And I watch my kids, Lisa, as you mentioned earlier, do the same. I'm curious if you're seeing stuff in kids, a resilience and adaptability of flexibility that is surprising you. Like, is there anything that you're seeing that you're like, wow, I never expected them to be able to do this or manage this or bounce back from this in a way that like, if I had told you three years ago, we were going to see this in kids, you'd be like, no way. I, I, I can't imagine that. Yeah. I mean, the fact that any kid functioned academically entirely online is really kind of extraordinary. Like that any kid did. And some kids didn't. I mean, we, we learned a lot about how much the physical structure of going to school and moving from class to class supported kids' executive functioning. And there were some kids who were able to like just bust out all this executive functioning that they had available and to replicate that kind of structural support without the physical building. And other kids just weren't there, you know, or needed to have time to develop it. And so that was really hard. But that's incredible. The kids learned anything last year is an incredible thing. Beyond that, what I am seeing, and this is so sweet and delightful, and this is why teenagers are the best, is so much excitement about banal adolescent opportunities, you know, to get to go to ice cream with your friends and sit on the lawn and eat it is like the best thing in the whole world. And I mean, it's always been good, but it has taken on a level of delight that was not there before. Yeah, they are literally stopping to smell the roses. That is what I am seeing across the board is a, you know, it's, it's sort of, gratitude in action. They don't, they wouldn't label it, I don't think, that way. Um, and even up to Lisa and I have seniors in high school. Vanessa has one who already graduated from high school, but um, has been through this stage. But our seniors are coming into a year that is notorious for being incredibly high pressure in the first six months. And what I am hearing from so many friends and it's not just here in LA, it's sort of across the country is a shift in that thinking too. Like, wow, if I get to go to school for my senior year, it's a win. If I get to move to college next year and go to college, that's amazing in and of itself. The wear of it and the tearing each other down to get there of it feels like it has dissipated a bit, particularly for this one small cohort. And so in lots of little ways, I agree with you. I see that not just the enjoyment of the thing they couldn't do before, but a different approach to the things that we thought might go one way. I mean, I watched my oldest, who's now I'm trying to evacuate from a hurricane in New Orleans, but he completely reprioritized what he wanted out of his college experience based on what he had already experienced through the pandemic. It was like what he cared about became very different because he knew what he sought. He knew what brought him joy. He knew what made him happy. Like all of those things became very clear during very dark days during the pandemic. And the self-awareness 
not only the gratitude of the everyday, but the self-awareness of like what makes us tick. That surprised me to watch an 18-year-old boy come to that realization. And it was wonderful to watch him turn to us and say, like, this is my experience and I know this is what I need for myself and for my well-being. I think it has trickled down too for parents of even middle schoolers and kids who are, you know, there's that whole thing of finding your thing, right? What are you passionate about? What are you interested in? And I think for a long time, there was a lot of talk around the idea of parents over-programming their kids and trying to help their kids find a passion. And it all came from a good place. But I think you don't have to be an older teenager to have gotten to know yourself. And in pandemic, I think a lot of kids did discover authentic interests or they discovered that the thing they're spending a lot of time on is actually not an authentic interest at all in life. Well, I don't need to to play the sport that I'm not interested in, you know, eight days a week because really I, I do want to give myself over to something that I feel passionate about. So I find these lessons that we're seeing worn on the sleeves of the older teenagers are actually translating down to the younger teenagers and the tweens uh, in a very, I think, a very nice way. I mean, a very, I'm a glasses half full kind of person. So that's how <laughs> I'm seeing it. Does um, watching Netflix for several hours a day count as one of it those does. passions? It does. And, you know, there's some serious excelling in that arena going on in my house. Definitely um, in my yes, house. There's like A++ in the Marvel movie yes, marathon. Gold yes. medalists. Yes. So as we think about, some of you have children who've actually gone back to school. My kids go back to school next week. And I'm seeing kids emerge. Some of them are five inches taller. Some of them, their voices have dropped. Some of them have grown breasts. Some of them have chest hair and underarm hair, right? I'm, I'm seeing all these kids come in and out of sports classes and pools and all that stuff. And they're different human beings. What we learned in the pandemic about resilience and adaptability, Lisa, help us apply that to the challenges of a kid in the world of puberty. Help us apply that to everyone's in a different place. Everyone's stopping and starting at different moments. It's confusing. It's topsy-turvy. It's wonderful. It's thrilling. It's all of those things. What can we take from these resilience and adaptability lessons and apply them to the the world of, of adolescence and puberty? The pandemic stinks, but it has some gifts within it. And one gift that we should not squander is that it has really made us rethink what it means to have a healthy relationship with one's feelings. So you're describing all of the feelings that invariably arise around puberty. It's a really mixed bag, and it's a powerful set of feelings. And I really feel like we came into the pandemic as a culture with this idea that you really don't want uncomfortable feelings and you should really try to prevent or banish or get rid of as quickly as possible any uncomfortable feelings. Well, that was never a possibility. Puberty has always made it clear that was never a possibility, but we didn't really interrogate what our options were. We were very much in the banishment mode coming into the pandemic. Okay, well, that didn't hold us in very good stead. If you dump 18 months of misery on a bunch of teenagers, like you cannot banish that misery. 
we should have left that mode a long time ago. Now we've got our great opportunity. This applies to puberty. This applies to all of adolescent emotional intensity. The goal is not banishment. The goal is regulation. And this is a way we've thought about feelings forever in academic and clinical psychology. And one of the things that we're kind of bad about in academic and clinical psychology is that once something is established and understood and well-researched, and there's not actually a whole lot of new frontier in that area, we kind of take it as a given and we stop thinking it might be of use to tell everybody else about it. So (laughs) we are very comfortable with this idea of regulation and we've done a pretty crummy job of making it available to broad audiences. So here's how we think about emotion, and this is a vastly more useful way to think about puberty or any emotion related to adolescence, which is you are going for regulation, which means you are going for a healthy balance of expressing feelings and containing feelings, and that is as good as it gets. So the goal as a parent is first to just admire how kids go about this themselves, right? Kids express their feelings in all sorts of ways that are sometimes very obvious, like telling us their feelings, sometimes less obvious, like, you know, wrestling the dog or, you know, shaking a soda can to like see what happens when you open it, it goes everywhere, right? That that's an expression of feelings or listening to music. Containing feelings, they do this by getting overwhelmed. And so then they go hop on Netflix and they distract themselves. Or, you know, kids who are anxious about the start of the school year who are, organizing their school supplies within an inch of their life, you know, and that's a beautiful example of containment. So the first thing is kids are pretty good at this and we shouldn't underestimate their intuitive capacity for this. Where we come into the picture is reinforcement. So if your kid is expressing too much, drowning in feelings, you know, getting stuck in something, spinning, you know, why is everybody growing and I'm not growing? Why do they all have boobs? And, you know, when am I going to get my period? And they are going round and round and round. Our job is to support containment, to say, you know what, it's going to happen. We can talk about this later. I think right now you're actually kind of spinning your wheels. Why don't we go watch TV and we can have this conversation later if you feel like it. If a kid has shut down, They're not talking. They come home from school and something is really wrong and you don't know what. Then our job is actually to support containment. And that might be saying, want to take a walk? Because sometimes kids will talk if they don't have to look us in the face. Or saying, you know, I can tell something's not right. You don't have to tell me right now, but if you want to talk about it later, I'm game. Texting kids can be a beautiful way to actually give them time. I think I I think all the time about processing speed in kids. It's, again, one of those things. It's a huge factor in terms of how people function, but we don't talk about it that much, which is the speed with which a person thinks. And it's relatively divorced from intelligence. You can be a very, very smart person who thinks in a slow way. But we need to recognize that to roll up on a kid and be like, you need to tell me about your feelings, or I can tell you're having a hard feeling. What's a hard feeling? Okay, you're expecting two things at once. One is that they're fluent in their emotional life which not all kids are, and two is that they can answer fast. So if you send a kid a text saying, I got the sense today was very, very hard. I'm game to talk if you want either, or you can just text me back. You give them time, you give them space. They are not in the hot seat, but that's our job. We're supporting expression when it needs to happen. We are supporting containment when it needs to happen. That's as good as it gets. That's as good as it needs to be. Hey, it's Cara. We all know puberty isn't always easy. One of the trickiest pieces of the puberty puzzle is boobs. When will I get them? Why are they so tender? And why does every bra out there 
seem to pull, push, pad, itch, scratch, or be so flimsy it doesn't do a thing. That's where Umla comes in. It's a company that makes puberty comfortable, a company I founded with my friend Julie. When our own daughters began the puberty journey, we couldn't find a decent starter bra anywhere. So we made one. It fits perfectly whether boobs are just starting to bud or they've been growing for a few years. We call it the Umbra. And it's game-changing. The Umbra is made from buttery cotton that feels like second skin, ridiculously soft, and so comfortable you'll forget you're wearing anything at all. Umbra's one-of-a-kind support comes from its patented layered design that creates gentle compression without any tight binding, which also means it doesn't need any bulky, awkward pads because it's built to seamlessly hide nipples and protect against those dreaded ouch moments throughout the day. Our daughters and their friends are done with puberty, but they still love and wear their Umbra's. It's why we say that the Umbra may be your first bra, but it will definitely be your favorite bra. Come say hi, look around, and find your Umbra, plus lots of other puberty info, at myoomla.com. That's M-Y-O-O-M-L-A dot com. After we've been Zooming all day, we both hit the same wall. We forgot about dealing with dinner. But given what we do for a living, we know the importance of feeding ourselves and our families well. And we want it to be yummy. So we're psyched to have found Factor. Factor's chef-created, ready-to-eat meals show up at our front doors. With over 35 different options a week to choose from, Cara goes vegan and veggie while I opt for a whole variety since I have so many kids. Two-minute prep gets us restaurant-quality full meals, snacks, and smoothies. And Factor is less expensive than takeout. And because flexibility is key, you can choose anywhere from six to 18 meals per week, and you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Factor meals require no prepping, no cooking, and no cleanup. Our kids are thrilled by the lack of dishes. So get started today and have a week of meals ready to go, taking the dinner prep pressure off. Head to factormeals.com slash puberty50. Use the code PUBERTY50 to get 50% off. That's code PUBERTY50 at factormeals.com slash PUBERTY50. We know it's really tough when a kid's skin is breaking out for the first time or the hundredth time. But now there's an effective product that can help. It's called Phyla, and it's clinically proven to fix acne by targeting the bad bacteria on the skin without eliminating all the good bacteria. This rebalances the skin's microbiome, treating existing breakouts and preventing new ones. Phyla's active ingredient is a probiotic isolated from the skin of healthy, acne-free individuals. This means Phyla can stop acne before it starts by eliminating bacteria in the pores without irritating or drying skin. And Phyla is safe for kids of all ages. Dermatologists recommend this easy three-step system. Just cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. My own kids actually use this product. They love it because it works so well. Get 25% off your first order of Phyla with the code PUBERTY. Go to phylabiotics.com 
and type in the code PUBERTY at checkout. Link is in the show notes to get started. This is Amanda Hirsch from the Not Skinny But Not Fat podcast. You might know me from Not Skinny But Not Fat on Instagram, where I spend my time talking about reality TV, celebrities, everything happening, and pop culture every Tuesday, okay? I also talk to some of our favorite celebs and reality TV stars. We talk about what's going on. Tune in every Tuesday and just feel like you're talking with your best friends in your living room. I have two kids who have kind of either language stuff or processing stuff. Mm-hmm. And my relationship with them over text is so meaningful and so rich and so expressive. And at first I was kind of like, oh, I feel a little funny admitting that I have like an amazing text relationship with <laughs> my kids. But it has been such a gift, even when we're sitting in the same house, like we can be a floor away from each other. and we communicate by text in ways that we don't necessarily communicate when sitting, you know, next to each other face to face. And I really appreciate your encouraging that and recognizing the ways in which kids learning style can impact the ways they can express and share emotion. Like I don't think people appreciate how much learning stuff, executive functioning stuff, processing speed, language disorders can impact a kid's ability to get out the emotions that they can recognize within their own heads. I, this is fabulous. I think that's wonderful. I love that you have it. And again, if we set as the outcome we're going for is expression, I don't care how your kid does it. They, I mean, as long as it's not graffiti on your dining room wall, you know, it's probably not the ideal way. But if they're writing it in a diary to themselves, if they're writing it in a letter, if they're sending it in a text, if they're making a song of it, like if the aim is expression, there is no no value to the idea that the right way is I ask you a question and you answer it on time, right? Like that, that like, and we do it in person and we're looking at each other. Like that is really, really limiting. The other thing we just don't credit enough, and this is just another way of saying what you just said is for you to say to a kid, how are you feeling? And for them to answer that question, okay, here's what has just happened. They are a kid who happens to have a really adept understanding of the weather systems that are essentially emotions, right? These nebulous abstractions that are feelings. And then they are a kid who can tell weather systems apart. They know the difference between the anxiety weather system and the anticipation weather system. And then they have all of that vocabulary at their disposal. And so for you to say, how do you feel? And the kid's like, I'm feeling apprehensive. All right, 14 things just went right. They were aware of the weather system. They properly labeled the weather system. They did it really, really fast. They had the language and then they were in the mood to share it. Okay, if that is going to be the measure of success, a lot of kids are not going to get what they need. And I'll tell you, you know, in talking... And, and boys can be at a disadvantage here. It, you know, I don't love doing gender stuff, but culturally we socialize girls to talk about feelings. We socialize boys not to talk about feelings. And so, you know, girls are more likely than boys to come to this with an abundant and developed vocabulary and a whole lot of practice at talking about feelings. And boys are severely disadvantaged just in terms of how the culture operates. And I was talking to this terrific kid and this boy happens to be a musician. And I think he expresses enormously through his music. And he said, when my mom asks me how I feel, what I feel is static. Like, that's what it feels like to me, is static. Like, what am I supposed to tell her? 
I mean, that is so beautiful for him as a description of the inner world that his mom has 40 words for that static, but the kid does not. So that leads to the question about the kid who's non-expressive. And I don't, I don't mean sort of the, the child who knows how they feel and is not getting that feeling out, which I think is a different thing, but the kid who is temperamentally not a sharer, which I agree with you, you know, have both of us having written sort of gendered books, even though we don't entirely believe in the gendering of all this, uh, we, we both, I think, have landed in the same place, which is the socialization of girls to communicate and boys not to. And there are lots of wonderful examples of boys who do and lots of examples of girls who don't. But for that child who is non-expressive for whatever reason, you know, dive into how how to talk to that kid, not at that kid, but with that kid. Because I, I, I will say that I, I have one. And I think part of what goes on as he's gotten older is he's also managing me. So I think that part and parcel with figuring out how he feels and what he wants to share, he's very smart about going five steps down the path and thinking about how whatever he says is going to make me either feel or behave. And I wonder if that's common and how parents can help the less expressive kids if the parents are being managed. So, okay, this is why the reason I love teenagers the best is if you ask them a straight question, they will give you a straight answer. And so observing the same phenomenon, years ago, I was with a pack of girls. It was all girls at a girls' school in New Jersey. And I was like, you know that thing you do when you're clearly upset and your parent is asking you what's wrong and you won't tell them? And they're like, uh-huh. And I said, what, what's that about? What, what, why do you do this? And they said, there's four reasons. And this became a column I titled, Why Your Grumpy Teenager Doesn't Want to Talk to You. But it was exactly, Cara, what you said, which is, we think we're asking this question like, it's this moment, it's this moment only. They are attuned to this broad contextual reality about them and us. Okay, so here are the four reasons. First thing they said is, I know what you're going to say. So I am upset because I bombed that math test and it's the exact same math test that you asked me if I had studied enough for. And so if I tell you that I am upset about that, you're going to say, oh, told you so, and I don't want to hear it. So that's why I can't answer your question. So that was one reason. A second reason is you might tell somebody what I'm going to say. So what's upsetting me is very personal. And if I tell you, you might not get how personal it feels. And often what feels very, very personal to a teenager seems kind of garden variety and completely regular to us and like not a big deal but it feels like a state secret to them. And so then you're going to get on the horn and you're going to tell your sister and then she's going to bring it up when I see it her at Thanksgiving and I will be mortified. And you did that before. So I have no reason to think you won't do that again. The third reason, I love this one so much. They're like, it's complicated. So the reason I'm upset is that Susie, whom you do not like, and I know you do not like, was a jerk to me at school today. And I don't like her that much either, but I also happen to know that in two weeks, Susie's having a party I'm going to want to go to. And so in two weeks, when I say to you, can I go to Susie's party? You're going to be all like, but wait, isn't she the person who hurt your feelings two weeks ago? And like, I don't want to hear it. And then the last reason, and this is like, oh, I just adore them. This teenage girl, she like raised her hand. She's like, here's the thing. By the time I get home, 
I am 90% of the way over whatever it is that made me upset and rehashing the whole thing for my mom is not going to help me feel better. And so, you know, and they probably could give me 10 more reasons, but they had those right at the tip of their fingers. And so if you want your kid to open up and you're not thinking or don't can't imagine the contextual factors that are problems, I would just say, what gets in the way? of talking about what's on your mind. Like clearly something's getting in the way. Like what gets in the way? And if you ask it really meaning to hear and prepared to be non-defensive, you might get information that would help you out. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I wonder about like setting, you know, ground rules for the conversation that become increasingly sophisticated as your kids get older. I mean, your advice in Untangled, Lisa, which I carry around with me, like essentially in an invisible fanny pack is sometimes your kids just need to dump their crap on you so they can get on with their day. And then they get home and they're over it, but you're still carrying their crap around with you. And by the way, I don't carry the crap around in my fanny pack. I carry your advice around, which is (laughs) like, sometimes you just have to be the receptacle, receive it and let them and let them get on. But also Cara's point, sometimes they just don't want to hear your response, whether it's, you know, complaining about their friend or annoyed at the way they studied or didn't study or any of those things. One of the things that my kids have started doing is actually kind of managing the conversation for me so that they set the ground rules and they'll say, I'm going to tell you this, but I don't want it to become a whole conversation. I just either feel obligated to share it with you or know that I will feel better, but like, I don't want to get into it. Right. So that's like one version of the ground rule. And I wonder with adults, you know, if we say to our kids, Hey, like what's going on? I'm going to sit here with no judgment and I'm going to just kind of be a listening ear. Do they buy it? Or do they think it's BS? And how long does it take us to like prove our trustworthiness with them to say like, if you tell me I'm not going to call my sister tonight and then she's not going to approach you in Thanksgiving, you can tell me. So like, I'm wondering, do ground rules feel inauthentic? Do they work? And how long does it take to kind of build that trust with our adolescents? The first part's hard, right? I mean, I think sometimes kids might be like, yeah, I'm not playing. I'm not playing. Like, I don't want to talk and there's nothing you can say that's going to make me talk. And like, those are lovely rules, but I'm not talking, right? Whereas other times I think they might do it. I also, um, I'm a big believer in creating conditions as opposed to articulating conditions. So I think some of the best conversations I've had with my teenage daughter are ones that start when we're in the car three to four minutes from home because there is a very clear end point and she knows it. And so I think those kinds of structural features can be more powerful than here we are, I'm explaining the rules of the game to you. If you've blown it, and we've all blown it, right? Where you shared something that you truly did not think was a thing and it just, your kid found out and they got really upset. Actually, I have a memory. This is actually a very pubescent memory. So I had a lump in my breast at 14. And it was just, you know, I just have breasts like that, that, you know, kind of get, I, I get, I've had more biopsies, thank goodness, all bad, all, you know, all negative till now. And I had to get a mammogram at 14 and I was mortified, mortified by this. And my mom told, and I was like, don't tell anyone. And my mom, who I think was really like in retrospect, I'm sure like freaked out herself 
mentioned it to a friend and I was like, what? You know, that that was the end of the world to me. And that was, you know, again, it was one, it was another nothing that I've had a, you know, decades of nothings. So if you blow it, you have to apologize and apologize all the way to say, and, and do a real apology. You know, I screwed that up. I am so sorry. I was not thinking about what that would feel like for you. I get it. If you are angry, here's how I'm going to try to make it right. So you do the full on earnest apology. No, but I was, or none of that. Like I screwed that right up. And then you can say, if you're willing to give me another chance, I promise I will never, ever violate your trust again. And if there's something I think a friend needs to know, like about a safety question, we'll do it together. I will never make an end run around you. And then you cross your fingers and hope they take a chance on you. And then you don't screw it up. Lisa, what if they, what if they ask us not to tell our partners? What if the Mm. privacy or the trustworthiness is, I'm going to tell you this, but I don't want you to tell mom, or I don't want you to tell. What is the kind of ethics around that as a parent um, in that situation? I think that's, there's no right answer. I don't think there's one answer that is like the right answer. Here's how I would handle that is I think it depends on the thing. You know, there are things where, you know, you got to put yourself in the shoes of the other parent. If there were a life or death or serious safety, serious concern that has like real long-term implications potentially for that kid's future, and my husband didn't tell me, I'd be really unhappy. And so I think that is one line. But short of that, you know, if a family is lucky enough to have two parents, it's a really nice thing to be able to distribute and use them in different ways. You know, in families where there are more than one parent, kids always are using each parent in a very individual way. I think it's a great gift we give them. The beautiful thing, though, about teenagers is if they make an unreasonable request and you say, here's the deal. I can't keep the secret because if dad kept that secret from me, it would feel like such a violation of our relationship because the one thing we are 100% a team on is your safety and health. And this is now in that category. Teenagers are like, that's fair. I mean, they, they, they are totally reasonable when you articulate it from a perspective that is not how they feel that very minute. That's right. And, and I want to just underline, highlight, exclamation point, the safety issue, because this crosses into the territory of parents who are, they don't want to be their kid's best friend, but they kind of want to be their kid's best friend because it feels really good when your kid thinks you're, you're their best friend and they like you and they think you're cool. And that's, you know, there's no parent who isn't sucked down that rabbit hole from time to time. And yet you cannot be their best friend and keep them safe. You just, the two are mutually exclusive at a certain point. And it's exactly to the point you bring up, Vanessa, which is sometimes information that you're getting precisely because you have agreed to be confidential is information that once it's out, it can't be confidential. And then you're stuck. And, and you know, one of the ways that I think is really helpful in medicine and pediatrics is to kind of split the conversation. So you have the conversation and you abide by the rules of that conversation in that moment, but you can always go back to the conversation later and say, I've been rethinking this. You shared this information with me on these terms. Here's what you've done. You know, we had this come up in our family not too long ago. You've dumped this really big piece of information on us and 
you got it off your chest and you feel better and you feel safer because you shared it. And now we're carrying that load and we're trying to figure out what can we do with that load to help the person that you're concerned about. And let's talk about it and let's think about it together. Like you needed to dump on me. Who do I need to talk to in order to help that child, right? And you're not going to be their best friend in that moment because they're going to be pissed off because you've just violated the terms of the contract of the conversation. But when it comes to medical issues, health issues, that is a very winning strategy because you can take it step by step and piece by piece. What I also love about that though, is that it's essentially a guiding principle in anything. And you both have written about this, which is have the kid start the conversation, have the kid not call the shots, but at least elicit from them what feels fair or right or what the direction should be. I mean, it is so much more empowering. And it's something I've learned from both of you, which is just like flipping around. Like, what do you think I should do? What do you think your curfew should be? How much allowance do you think you should get? How much like all of that? Right. And they may actually have a better answer than you have at the ready. I find that when I, when I turn the tables in that way, sometimes I'm looking for the answer. You know, in medicine, the history is 90% of the diagnosis. When they tell you what's going on, you know what's going on. If you listen, all you have to do is the parent sometimes is ask the right question and they will hand you the answer. It's an amazing amazing thing. I mean, when you come up with the same number, it's like, what do you think your allowance for college should be? And like the answer is exactly the number you're thinking of. You're like, yes, totally got this. In the context of this, Lisa, I would love to hear from you. Car and I have been thinking a lot about like the different kinds of parents, right? The helicopter parent, the snowplow parent. What is the opportunity here for adults and then not just parents, but, you know, educators, teachers, coaches, all the kids who love and care for kids. What is our opportunity to redefine who we are and how we are with the kids that we care for, right? Like in some ways it's scary because we've had eyes on our kids almost incessantly for 18 months and that feels comforting and safe. For others of us, we're like so sick of our kids and we can't wait for them to like go away to school for many, many hours every day. But like, where's our opportunity here? What can we take advantage of in this moment to kind of redefine using all the stuff that we've talked about during the course of the episode? Well, one thing the pandemic has given us, like you say, is more time with our kids. And so I think often when I have been a parent who does too much for my kids, it's just because it's more efficient for me to do it than for my kid to do it. Like, I'll just, I'll just make a phone call. Like, it's just not worth it. I'll do it for you. And so to the degree that the slowed down life or the more opportunity gives us time to say, here's what has to happen. Here are many ways it could happen. How do you want it to happen? I'll stand by and help as you figure out how you want it to happen. I think that's the way to do it. And actually to go back to what we were talking about, you know, when say a kid brings forward information about a friend that's scary, you know, the fastest, most efficient thing to do is for us to pick up the phone and call that kid's parent. And that usually blows up. With more time, we can do what I like to do, which is to say to them, okay, here's the deal. People who are able to get that kid help need to know what's going on. That has to happen. How that information gets to them, we've got options. We can sort this out. I can call, you can call, you can tell the kid that you're going to need to tell their parent if that kid doesn't. I mean, that, that we can slow down the process 
And like you're saying, Vanessa, bring the kid in. Here are four ideas I have about how that information can get to the parent. What ideas do you have about how that information can get to the parent? But to lean in to that greater sense of time to do things, to think it through. And in early in my training, I, I got to work with um, this psychoanalyst named Erna Furman, who'd been trained by Anna Freud, and she was this German psychoanalyst, and she was brilliant. And she, um, in talking about toddlers and how toddlers come to autonomy, she laid out this four-step model that works perfectly for teenagers, which is that first we do things for them, then we do things with them, then we stand by to admire as they do on their own, and then we turn it all the way over. And I think to always try to go back to that, that even if it's faster for us just to do it for them, that's actually not how they become independent. That's actually how medical school works. Exactly, <laughs> right? Exactly. It's the same Does that mean they're model. all doctors when they're, when they're they done? What, what we say in medical school is you see one, do one, teach one. And that is exactly the path. And we need to brand this right now. So the the sort of this version of kind of collaborative, elicitive parenting. What are we going to call that? What's the coaching? It's coaching. coaching. Is actually the the model you want to move into, right? Is it's such a beautiful thing and such a valuable thing when a teacher needs to be contacted to say to your kid, "You draft it. We'll work with your draft." And then to get in there and help them learn how to do this. But the email comes from them. They edit it with you. It slows everything down. It is so much better. It is coaching. It is coaching. I literally have just walked this through preseason soccer with one of my kids for whom self-advocacy does not come naturally. And it's hard. And he, every step of the way is like, this is really hard for me, but I know I have to learn how to do it. Will you help me with the email? Will you tell me what to say? And I'll say, I'm not going to tell you what to say, but I'll listen to what you think you should say. So the coaching parenting model, I really, I really like that. So let's do coaching teaching. Now let's elaborate it. Because the other thing is, and I guess coaches are teachers, not only to say you draft it, I'll edit it, but then to say, here's why I edited it the way I edited it. And, you know, I gave it a really clear subject line because your teacher is currently overwhelmed. And so they're going to want to know exactly what this email is about the second it pops in. Like, so really um, being good instructors, you know, not just doing it, but explaining here's why we do it this way. And um, it's, it's awesome. They quickly pick it up. We just need to make time to do it. Okay. So I'm going to attempt to go full circle on this conversation and bear with me while I try to create the through line because I think there's a very clear one, but let me see if I can articulate it. We are entering a school year now. Some have already started. Some started today, maybe me. Some are starting in a week or so. And as we all embark on this new year, the vast majority of our kids are going back to school. During the pandemic, one of the things that I heard over and over, I know Vanessa heard over and over, and I'm guessing, Lisa, you heard over and over, was the gift of time with kids and the fact that parents had eyes on their kids in a way that they never had before, which in some cases didn't work out so well, but in many cases actually made the parents feel much closer to their kids and made the kids feel closer to their parents. 
So the question I have to kind of put a bow on all of this is how can parents stay connected with their kids and feel connected with their kids as their kids leave the nest to go to school? My sense out of the gate on this is it won't be like it was, that the pandemic was a very strange and unusual time. And it's good for it to end. It's good for us to move back into typical routines. But it's also a reminder that there are things like having dinner together as a family that are worth trying to protect. And it may not be every meal <laughs> like we did, but I would say as a parent, stick up for things like that, stick up for the movie night, stick up for the family dinner. And it's okay if your kid doesn't really want to do it. And it's okay if your kid's not that chatty. You can say, you know what? I just like getting to look at your face and I just want to sit across from you and I miss being close with you like we were in the pandemic. And so we're going to have dinner together. And just to be, you know, kind of matter of fact about what a value that is in our homes, how much it means to us, it's so important for kids to know that we like them and want to be with them. And the value of saying, I want to know when we're having dinner together as a family because I really want to have dinner as a family is entirely grounded in the fact that you've expressed that wish. It is not actually that it needs to be a fabulous dinner where everybody talks and feels close. If that happens, that's icing. The cake is saying, I really like you and I want to be with you. And I, I love that because you can say that without saying, and I want to be your friend, right? I really like you and I want to be with you as your parent, which is just the win of, of all time as we send our kids back out into the world. And I just to make sure that we are sort of level setting and living in reality, I think we're all so eager to say we're done. We're not done with COVID. COVID's not done with us. We will have shutdowns that come over the course of the year in different communities, in different states, depending upon how people choose to behave and choose to participate in all of these mitigations. And frankly, you know, we have just like we have a global responsibility to things like climate change, we have a global responsibility to COVID, which we are going to see it will bite us in the butt very quickly if we as a nation don't step up to help other nations curb their COVID as well. And so that's just my little, I guess it's my little PSA for parents who don't want to replicate any version of the last 18 months, do your part going forward to keep the masks on, to vaccinate, to distance when possible, to do all the things that we know will keep schools open. There's no one who's going to shut schools permanently like happened last year, but um, there will be intermittent shutdowns. There just will be. And so I guess there will be moments where we're very connected to our children again as they are sent home to quarantine for two weeks and the like. And that, you know, probably for parents of the kids under 12, that may be a more common scenario, frankly, than for parents of kids over 12. Lisa, I can't think of a better guest to launch us into this year than you. And before we wrap up, I want us to end with our practical puberty 
parole, as Cara calls it. I call it a tip. Um, We haven't really quite come up with the best branding yet, but we're still working on it. And I'm actually going to start because there's something you said earlier on in the episode that I found such a helpful framework for thinking about kids of all different types, teens in particular, which is finding the healthy balance between expressing feelings and containing feelings. And some of us have kids who are expressing all the time and haven't learned how to contain. And some of us have kids who are containing all the time and haven't yet learned how to express. And so thinking of it as a as a balance and as us as a support system is such a wonderful framework. And in the weeks ahead where things will be complicated and intense and challenging and exhausting, I will hold that close to me as my as my touchstone. So thank you for for that. Who wants to go next? I'll go next. The coaching parent. I think that is an incredible promotion from the helicopter and the snowplow parent. If if that is the new framework for parenting, hooray for creating that framework, Lisa, because it's it's exactly it's it's what parents um, parents should aspire to be their child's coach. It's, you know, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I love it. Oh man. Um, for me, the thing, if I were to go back and underscore something from the conversation beyond what you just did, I think the piece about apologizing to kids when we blow it is huge. I think so much when parents have teenagers or their kids are becoming teenagers, parents start to worry about their authority and maintaining their authority And where I've seen the worst outcomes is when the parent won't admit when they've made a mistake and they won't do it because they're afraid that that will somehow undermine their authority. And the reality is it actually works the other way around. Teenagers know exactly when we have blown it. They know exactly when we've screwed up. And if we won't cop to it, much less apologize, they start to take us less seriously all the time and to trust us much less. So to say I made a mistake and I owe you an apology and I will not make that mistake again and I hope you can forgive me and here's my plan for doing better going forward actually is, first of all, modeling how we want kids to respond when they make mistakes, but is also saying I'm so confident in my authority that I can own this and you can trust me. And so I don't think we should screw up in order to apologize, but when we screw up, in or- which we inevitably will, an apology actually deepens and improves your relationship with your kid and we shouldn't miss an opportunity to do it. And they become these incredible sources of compassion in our homes, authentic compassion, right? And we start to see each other as real human beings. Um, And as kids move into the teen and young adult years, they're so fun and interesting, particularly when they start exercising that compassion because you're like, oh, I really get to hear what you think and what you feel and all of that. And it just, it makes the household so much more interesting. I said to my mom, when I was pregnant with our fourth kid, I said, when did it get fun? Like when, when did you enjoy being a parent? She goes, well, when you were all in college and we, (laughs) (laughs) and we could all like drink wine and cook together. I was like, oh man, I got to wait all those years for it to get fun. And I will say, mom, I love you, but it got fun much earlier than those years because tweens and teens are so... Everyone gives them a bum rap, but they are so interesting and fun and funny that I think they're they're really... They can be our guideposts in so many different ways. So with that, Lisa, 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Such a busy time for you and for all of us. We are so grateful to have you here and to have you in our, in our world to give us your wisdom. Thank you both. I mean, for the work you do is so incredible and just really a huge treat to get to be with you. All right. Good luck. Big hug. Bye, Zoo. <laughs> <you. laughs> okay. hugs. Bye, Virtual Lisa. Hugs. Bye-bye. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at The Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.